Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be going over our third part of responding to this article by Greg Cantelmo. Yeah, again, I don't know if I'm saying the guy's name correctly, but he wrote an article on Bible.org that is against open theism, and it's pretty long, it's pretty detailed, and that's why, you know, it's, it's of interest to us because this is a good consolidated broad-spectrum analysis of Calvinist thoughts against open theism. Today we're going to be skipping towards the end of his response. He lists a bunch of uh, verses that open theists regularly use against Calvinism or classical theology. We're going to be skipping that, and we're going to go to his defense of classical theism. Cantelmo writes, and this is a section called Exhaustive Foreknowledge, the biblical passages that favor the classical theist position far outweigh those of the open theist. Of the 4,800 passages that bear upon divine omniscience and especially divine foreknowledge, only 105 or 2.1875% directly argue for the open theist position. Right here we see Cantelmo's intellectual laziness. These, these scriptures that he's citing you know, guaranteed, guaranteed, he just takes any scripture in which God says something about the future and he just blanket counts that towards classical omniscience. But classical omniscience is not God knows something in the future. Open theists say that. Open theists say that. Classical omniscience is God knows every detail to ever happen in the past and future exhaustively. Like there's nothing in the future that could happen that God doesn't already know. And me saying, I'm going to go on an airplane ride tomorrow, That and then when it comes true, that's not evidence that I have omniscience of the future. If you think that that's evidence that I'm omniscient, that's incredible absurdity. I often make long lists of predictions that I've gotten right over the years. I've gotten the past three or four presidential elections. I predicted those correctly I predict often where I'm going to be at what times of the year, when I'm going to work, when I'm leaving work. My predictions come true all the time. My predictions more often come true than they don't. This is not evidence of omniscience. This is not evidence that I'm timeless and I could see all the future. It's just to take it as evidence of that is absolutely absurd. Conversely, one piece of evidence of me not knowing something in the future is extremely good evidence. Just just once, just once if I get one prediction wrong, that is extremely good evidence I'm not omniscient of the future. So the open theists, to prove that God is not omniscient, just have to show one instance of God not knowing the future. For Kant Elmo to show that God is omniscient of the future, he has to show Proof texts which show that God knows everything to ever happen in the future. He doesn't do that. He does not do that. Those verses do not exist. Instead, he takes things that God says about the future and says, Oh, look at this. This is a future omniscience of all things to ever happen. And then he doesn't even go through the intellectual rigor to go through to see if that thing actually happened as described. Because often in the Bible, prophecy does not work like, it's, it's super detailed, and then every detail comes true. No, instead it's a broad overview. It's fairly vague usually, and there's multiple ways of fulfillment. 
And then the people who are arguing for prophecy fulfillment have to use huge mental loops to try to get the prophecy fulfilled in detail. But let's look at the numbers, because I was very interested in where these numbers are being generated. And Cantelmo, he's not the primary source of these numbers. He's not. He's quoting someone else. And who does he quote? Let's turn and see. The guy cites two books. He quotes God's Lesser Glory by Ware, and then he quotes Millard Erickson's What Does God Know and When Does He Know It? I have both these books. So I turn to the reference in both these books, and both these books are not primary sources. They don't have the list of these verses. Instead, they link to a third book, and that book is not available online. It's not available on Amazon. Let me rephrase myself. It is available on Amazon, but not digitally. And so I was very interested in this book. I would like to have a copy of this book. I don't have a copy of this book. And chances are that Kent Elmo does not either. So he's blind citing numbers that he's never seen. He's never vetted these verses. He's never looked at these verses. He doesn't know what these verses are that he's quoting. And guess what? We got verse lists from Open Theists from uh, Gordon Olson. Has a bunch of verse lists about foreknowledge of the future. And even uh, Elseth in his book... Did God know? There's this huge verse list that lists out every single verse. They're available for anyone to find for free to go look at the verses, look at the context, and see if the verse is saying what these authors claim. But there's no good site for that for this uh, work by Steve Roy. But what I did manage to do is Google Books usually scans a ton of books, and then they give previews of these books, and so I was able to digitally find this book on Google Books and read excerpts. I wasn't able to read the entire thing. And here was a prediction that I made before even pulling up this book. And uh, take it as evidence that I have total omniscience of the future. But I predicted that this book would be filled with intellectual drivel. The proof texts are going to be wild speculation and not even applicable to the points being made. And it really is not going to prove its point. And it's not going to be a detailed textual analysis of what the verses mean in context. And guess who has omniscience of the future? Me. We'll take an example from towards the start of his book when he's talking about God's quantitative knowledge over ours. Roy writes, Because God is altogether holy, i.e. separate from and superior to all that he has made, his knowledge, thoughts, and ways are qualitatively greater than ours. Thus Yahweh says in Isaiah 55, 8-9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's the context? You just cut out the context, and then you made a complete opposite point of what's being made in the context. This, this verse is not about God's qualitative uh, thoughts. You know, it's not saying that God is like a master mechanic and we're like a dumb monkey that just bangs on things with rocks. Let's read the context. Let's figure out what's going on here. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and toward God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What is he talking about? 
In what way is God's thoughts and ways not like ours? Because God pardons. This is about God's compassion, God's ability to forgive. This is about God's repentance. God would repent where man would be vindictive. That in that way, in that way, God's ways are not our ways. But he takes it out of context and he makes it about nonsense metaphysics that aren't supported by the context. He makes it about, oh, God's ways are just inconsolable. We don't understand. We don't we can never understand and they're they're just above our thoughts and no, God's saying, I'm more compassionate than you guys. I'm more loving than you guys. You guys tend to be vindictive. You guys tend to be evil. In that way, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. He's not saying that my ways are just totally outrageous and just no one can understand them. That's not the point. In context, he tries to explain how he operates so that we could understand how God operates. But to Roy, to Roy, he says that God's, his knowledge, his thoughts, and ways are qualitatively greater than ours. He makes it about negative attributes. That's not what this is about. It's not what this is about. Read the context of the verses you try to quote. So he also lists a bunch of, uh, you know, his main proof texts for God's omniscience. He says that God's perfect in knowledge, and he quotes Job thirty-seven sixteen. Do you see any problem there? So, so this guy's primary proof text about God's perfect knowledge is in the context of a quote by one of Job's friends, Elihu. Elihu. He's quoting Elihu, and God condemned Job's friends. Granted, Elihu does not show up in any, anywhere before Elihu's narrative and anywhere after. He's, he's just, he just gets forgotten. There's nothing condoning the things that Elihu says, and there's a general condemnation of Job's friends. And when God arrives on the scene in Job, he contradicts a lot of what Elihu says. Why, for your primary proof text on God's perfect knowledge, which you try to make turn it into some sort of metaphysical absolute, which it's not, it's not metaphysical absolute. Elihu is not saying God's totally omniscient of all future events or something like that. Or he's not even saying that God knows everything currently on earth in detail from every rock and tree on some deserted island where no one's living and God doesn't have to care about that God knows all those things. He's not saying that. He's just saying that God has really good knowledge. But, but Roy takes this, he turns it metaphysical, and then he applies it to God and claims this as his primary proof text, a quote from a person with dubious credentials. How is this intellectual scholarship? How, what, how is this? Roy then turns to Psalms 139 to prove how vast God's thoughts are. In Psalms 139, 17 to 18, he quotes, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And this is a difficult passage to translate in Hebrew. You go look at the word used for thoughts, and the Septuagint translates it as friends. How precious are your friends to me? And the word, the Hebrew word, is used twice in the Bible, and both in Psalms 139. And notice the awkward wording and phrasing. How precious to me are your thoughts? Well, whose thoughts are we talking about? Are these God's thoughts or is these God's thoughts about David? 
Or are these thoughts of David about God? O God, how vast the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. Well, that kind of uh, suggests that the Septuagint might be right, that these are friends or associates of God, because you could count these, perhaps. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And so what does this mean? I awake and I am still with you. Is this God observing David through friends, through associates? Is this God thinking about David? Is this David thinking about God? It, this is just, this is an odd passage. And it's a very, very odd passage for people to quote as a primary proof text like Roy does for what he's trying to prove. He's trying to prove that God's thoughts and knowledge are vast. Is, is that what this is about? This is about God's knowledge. How many facts that God can recall on the spur of the moment. Is this even about God's thoughts about other things other than David? Are these about David's thoughts about God, conversely? Or is these about God's associates? This is a very sketchy verse to use as a proof text without further context, without being able to definitively say what this verse is about. And to present this as your primary proof text shows incredible intellectual laziness, or alternatively, it shows that your case that you're trying to build is incredibly shoddy, ill-conceived, and very forced on the text. Then we turn to Roy's proof text on God's knowledge is limitless, and he quotes Psalms 147.5. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. His understanding has no limit. What is that about? Is that about facts that God can recall like God's going to win in jeopardy because God's understanding has no limits. Or or is this about God can win in a chess game because he's he's mentally capable and his understanding is uncountable. Is that which one is it about? Is it about just being able to recall data or is it about understanding things like I can understand how things work. And notice how the word limitless is used. Let me quote you a different verse in the Bible. And this is a verse in narrative, and it's not in poetical books. You know, the Psalms is poetry. And so you might be prone to get exaggeration, hyperbole, flowery language. But this text comes from Genesis 41:49, And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it cannot be measured. Guess what? The same word is used for limitless in Genesis 41:49, and also in the verse in Psalms about God's understanding is limitless. So you got to be very careful when you're just assuming what you want on proof texts. The proof text Roy is assuming is about metaphysics, it's about perfection, perfect being theology, and about uh, pure infinity, nonsense like that. Ancient Israel did not have those concepts. They did not think like that. The language is shown in other places to be about mundane things. It's about corn. Corn is limitless. Does that mean, you know, it just fills all space and time and there's nothing in existence except for corn because corn is limitless? That It's, it's hyperbolic. And it's hyperbolic in, in the narrative. How much more so is it hyperbolic in the Psalms? What is this Psalm actually saying? 
Is it a proof text or is he just assuming it on the text because he has preconceived objectives that he's trying to reach without consideration for how language is used? This guy has a predefined conclusion and he looks for anything he can to give evidence, to give, uh, give him a little bit more weight in what he claims. But his evidence is flawed. He's not coming from it from an objective perspective where there's valid and more probable interpretations of his proof texts. Psalms 147.5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God's really smart. God's really capable and he understands things. That's the point being pressed. To make it into negative theology is a huge and unwarranted stretch of logic. Roy then quotes a bunch of uh, proof texts to say that God's knowledge is all-encompassing. And you're going to find that language throughout the Bible that God sees even what people do in hidden areas. And that's usually the point that's being pressed, is that people try to hide things from God, but God sees what they do. And the idea is not future omniscience of all events. The idea instead is that God watches people and then knows what they are doing. There's, there's no concept in Hebrew where God foresees the future in some sort of movie fashion and knows what everyone's going to do before they're born. That's not in the Bible. And instead, the Bible describes God gaining information by watching what people do. God is very knowledgeable and no, no Christian is going to dispute that. But turning these things into metaphysical absolutes that all God's knowledge is inherent and it just appears in his head instantly and, and he doesn't he, he can't choose not to know something. Like if God's like, oh, there's a gay bathhouse over there and there's some weird stuff going on there. God can't say, I don't want to see this. Not in classical theology, not in classical omniscience, not in classical, you know, future omniscience of all events. That, that is not allowed. But did, but did Israel th think that? Did Israel say that God is forced to know everything? That God is just incapable of not knowing it? Those are concepts that we don't find in the Bible, but are just catapulted onto Christian theology by Platonistic ideas. This idea of inherent knowledge. How does God know things? God watches those things. That's the mechanism by which God gains information. But that's Roy's book, and I'm going to try to get a full copy of the book, and I'll read it, and I will review it. And I don't know how much I could quote from it without violating copyright, but I'll try to make some detailed responses to it. But Cantelmo cites this book blindly. Cantelmo hasn't read the book. He's not familiar with the book. He's quoting other people who quote the book, so he's not even familiar with the proof texts, the metrics used to to uh, gain these numbers, the numbers of proof texts about God's foreknowledge. He doesn't know what in what context these proof texts are used. And, you know, just the methodology that we've already discovered in Roy's work casts serious, serious doubt on the objectivity of this book. This book is a shoddy work of theology. The conclusions are assumed onto the text, and the text is pressing an agenda. Let's pretend that this book came in front of biblical scholars like Christine Hayes, who's a secular scholar, not a Christian. She's not trying to press omniscience into every text. What grade would this book get? Probably not high. Probably not very high. 
if Roy's primary proof texts are these vague statements that are speculative in nature and some of the contexts directly refute what he's trying to prove, that doesn't speak very highly to his other evidences, his his less favored verses, because he's he's presenting, assumably, his best proof texts for these concepts, and they fall flat. So back to Cantelmo, he's not even citing the primary work. He's just engaging in confirmation bias, where he sees a little statistic that he likes, and he's just going to grab onto that without any sort of independent verification of those numbers. And he's going to cite that in an article that he's going to publish online about open theism. He doesn't know how these numbers are generated. He doesn't know the criteria. He doesn't know the methodology. But he just cites them blindly. And then Cantelmo, he writes this. The richest and strongest portion of scripture supporting God's knowledge of the future is Isaiah 40 through 48. Luckily, we already have a podcast on this. We went through it verse by verse. I don't know if it's quite verse by verse because it's it's hard to go through in 30 minutes all these chapters. But we went through the concepts, the reoccurring concepts, the reoccurring ideas. And this is not about foreknowledge. This is not about foreknowledge. This is not this test of the false gods that God says, uh, we're going to figure out who the real God is here. And to do so, we're all going to jump on Jeopardy. And whoever wins this trivia contest... That's the real God because he's got a lot of knowledge. And a lot of knowledge makes you a good God. That's not what's going on here. That's ridiculous. Instead, what is happening here is that this is a power contest. God is saying, I'm going to do this and then it's going to happen. In the past, I've said, I'm going to do this and then it's happened. Do you have similar things where you said what you're going to do and then you did them? Because only then do we know that you actually did those acts. You can't just retroactively say that you did something. There can't be like World War II and then a false god saying, I did that. I manipulated everyone in those events. No, the prediction has to happen before the event to know who did the event. That's what God's challenging the other gods to. It's a power contest. God says, I'm going to do this, and then he does it. Like, like I could do that too. I could do that too. I could say tomorrow... I'm going to get on an airplane, and I'm going to fly home. I'm going to do that because I have power. And if someone says, no, you're not, if the government says, no, you're not, and then they stop me, that just shows that they have more power than me. So if I'm claiming that I'm going to do things, and then those things do not happen, that shows a lack of power. But God's saying, I don't get thwarted like that. No one's going to come in and override what I'm going to do. I'm going to say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do that thing. And of course, God uses common sense. Calvinists, they don't use common sense at all. God says when nations repent of what they're doing, like a good nation becomes evil or an evil nation becomes bad, God will similarly repent of what he said he would do and what he thought he would do. This is, no one in their right mind would claim this is a violation of God's prophecy. This proves that God is powerless. This just shows that God has basic basic common sense. Cantelmo then quotes Daniel 11 and says Daniel 11 is also evidence for his view. He says another text supporting the classical position is found in Daniel 11 where Daniel makes specific predictions about a number of future events where it declares so many details involving future free choices with such precision this is truly overwhelming evidence in one chapter of the Bible of the reality of God's foreknowledge. 
But here's the thing. Not everything that's described in Daniel 11 came to pass exactly as described, not if you bump it up against historical records. And Neil Short in the God is Open Facebook group, that's why it's good to be on the Facebook group and see what kind of people post, you know, because you get a broader perspective of various issues. He just posted a commentary by Golden Gay, John Golden Gay, from the Biblical Word Commentary on Daniel 11. And this is coming from the commentary on verses 40 through 45. The hymn, again, presupposes that the northern king is the same person as that in verses 21 through 29. There is no hint of transition to Antichrist or Antiochus or Pompey and his associates. While the phrase at the time of the end, contrast to verse 35, seems to preclude our taking the verse as a resume of Antiochus's career as a whole, Porphyry assumed that the quasi-predictive historical account of Antiochus's career continues in these verses. But verses 40 through 45 cannot be correlated to actual events as verses 21 through 39 can. Further, in 40 through 45, the utilization of scriptural phraseology becomes more systematic than was the case earlier. These facts suggest that verse 40 marks the transition from quasi-prediction based on historical facts to actual prediction based on scripture and on the pattern of earlier events. This continues in 12, 1 through 3. These predictions then are not to be read as if they were mere anticipatory announcements of fixed future events, like the promises and warnings of the prophets. They paint an imaginative scenario of the kind of issue that must come from present events. The fact that the portrayal does not correspond to actual events in the 160s BCs compares with the fact that the Christ event does not correspond to other Old Testament prophecies of future redemption. Isaiah 9, 1-6 and 2-7. Now, now pay, pay attention to this phrase, this quote by Golden Gate. It is not the nature of biblical prophecy to give a literal account of events before they take place. That, that's not what biblical prophecy is. And so all these assumptions that the wearers of the world bring to the text and the Cantelmos bring to the text, that's not the nature of biblical prophecy. So even when prophecy is detailed, a lot of times those details just do not come true. And similar things happen. Similar things do happen. But... The details are not as important as the overall message. And this fact destroys negative theology. When their primary proof texts for God's omniscience of future events are prophecies with details, and those details do not come true, consistently in prophecy after prophecy, these details do not come true. That is evidence that these are not foreseeing the future like a movie. This is evidence that these are events that God either makes happens or foresees as happening, but they don't have to happen precisely as seen. And there is enough vagueness in biblical prophecy. There is enough leeway to allow prophecies to be fulfilled in alternative means than what is exactly described. That idea, the way biblical prophecy works, is cancerous to negative theology. It's cancerous to these ideas of total omniscience of all future events, they do not fit, and they directly refute these negative ideas. Again, open theists 
All they need to do to show that God is not omniscient of all future events in detail, like a movie, is just to show one instance of God not knowing the future. And our opponents, who claim God has future omniscience of all events, it doesn't matter how detailed one prophecy of the future is. You know, that just does not prove total, complete omniscience of all future events. Uh, Does God predicting events that happen 100, 200 years later, does that prove that God knows events that are going to happen 100,000 years later? No, that's a stretch. And so if this is the case that God foreknows all the future like that, you would expect somewhere in the Bible to say this, to go over this. If this was important in Israelite theology, you would expect more than this this, uh, circumstantial case based on shoddy proof texts. But you don't find that. We're about running out of time, but I'm going to cover one more of Cantelmo's silly statements. He says that Matthew 26, 33-35 proves omniscience, and this is the event in which Jesus predicts Peter's future denial. But remember, in Mark 13, 32, Jesus says he does not know when the end times is going to be. So here you have a non-omniscient person telling the future. This does not prove that God has total omniscience of all future events. That's nonsense. In fact, that proves against it. That proves that someone who does not have omniscience can predict future events. The Calvinists' own proof texts refute their views. They refute their own views, but they just don't think about their texts in a rational way with an eye out for critical thinking, and they just want to find some sort of proof text to pull out of context and just claim their theology is biblical without giving their proof text any thought whatsoever. They are looking for a proof text of verse theology rather than a contextual understanding of biblical theology. If you have any questions or comments on today's podcast, feel free to throw that on the God is Open webpage or start a new thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.